Every week, a number of men and women are executed for their Christian faith. This takes place in the Muslim world, but also in the Hindu world, in Buddhist countries, where atheism is strong. You can learn about their stories at Voice of the Martyrs. Just go to persecution.com. Our study right now is on Stephen. Well, certainly there are many famous Stephens. Perhaps the producer Steven Spielberg comes to mind. Or the late Steve Jobs of Apple. Steven Seagal, the actor. Stephen Colbert, the commentator. Or Stephen Hawking, the physicist. Yet none of these Stephens comes even close to the model of faith provided by Stephen, the deacon. Stephen the first Christian martyr. There is so much to learn about this man of God. So we'll read the texts, and they're found in Acts 6, 7, and 8. We'll uh, summarize the character of the man. We'll emphasize his witness as bold proclaimer of Christ. And we will look particularly at his death, which in many ways is parallel to that of Jesus Christ. I won't be able to read all of the verses in Acts 6, 7, and 8. So if you're not familiar with it, perhaps you want to uh, just take a break and read those passages. But if you are, I'm sure you'll follow along just fine. We come to the church after a few years. The church in Judea, the church in Jerusalem is growing. But, you know, growing churches have problems. And here there's an issue that involves prejudice. Some Jews were from a very Jewish background. They spoke Hebrew or Aramaic. Others were Hellenistic Jews. They came from a Greek background. And their natural language was Greek, which had been common in the world since the time of Alexander the Great. So in Acts 6.1, we learn that there was a program for distributing food to the needy, particularly widows. And these widows are probably just the members of the church. But the Greek-speaking widows are being neglected. To some extent, they have a grievance in favor of the uh, more Jewish, Aramaic-speaking widows. And so the apostles get together, the, the entire group, and they say these famous words. It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God, in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. Now, in no way is this passage implying that helping the needy is an unworthy calling or not uh, an activity that will be blessed by God's Spirit. But the apostles had a different role Their role was to spread the word directly through preaching, to pray so that they'd be ready to do that uh, wonderful work, and then to preach. And really, apostles are missionaries. But they're having to spend a lot of time in administration, which was not the idea. And it, it wasn't just a matter of getting rid of a hot potato, delegating a problem. They were solving a problem in a very intelligent way, because the people that they nominate for this task are all representatives of the 
marginalized group. We'll see that in a moment. They're all Greeks. Stephen is one of them. And we also see that the apostles don't micromanage here. They trust that the process will work when they put these people in charge. The apostles simply uh, uh, bless them. And then the problem is dealt with. What an important lesson for for ministry, for problem-solving, when unity needs to be restored. At any rate, that was their plan, and the proposal pleased the whole group. They chose, and I'm in Acts 6-5, they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. Every one of those names is Greek. All of these people, without exception, are from the overlooked background. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. Can you see the wisdom here? And the result is the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests, these are Jewish priests, became obedient to the faith. The church uh, had a real problem. It could have stalled out. But by wisely uh, dealing with the issue that involved the needy, that involved unity, that involved a racial divide, unity is restored and there is great growth. Seven men are mentioned, and yet most of them we never hear of again. Philip we will read about in Acts 8, uh, but that's not part of this lesson. Uh, Nicholas is supposed by some to be the father of the Nicolaitans, referred to in the book of Revelation, but that's quite a stretch and speculative. Stephen is the first named in this list, and he's the one we read about next. We see in the next passage that he's full of God's grace and power. Well, that was not surprising because that was one of the requirements, that he'd be full of the spirit and wisdom. But he's powerful. He's not just a wise sage. This is someone who's dynamic. And and not only in word, but in deed. And he's actually performing miracles, great wonders and signs among the people. Now, this is important. Verse 9, opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia who began to argue with Stephen. So remember, there are two kinds of Jews, the more Greek or Hellenistic Jews, and there are those who are a little bit less international, uh, more uh, you know, Palestinian. I think we could call it that. And there is resistance. But they could not stand up against the wisdom or the spirit uh, with which Stephen gave his uh, very powerful message. So he's opposed by members of the synagogue of the freedmen. These sound like uh, their ancestors were uh, servants. They were in bondage of some kind, and now they've become free. And uh, maybe they're very similar to Stephen, but they're jealous. And they're, they're from Cyrene and Alexandria, that is, northern Africa and Egypt, but also Cilicia and Asia, and that means Turkey. Okay, no more geography lesson. And what they do is they slander Stephen. And I think of just the way um, Jezebel and Ahab had Naboth uh, slandered and executed uh, back in uh, the book of Kings. Here we see in the book of Acts, 
the same dirty tricks. We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Well, it wasn't true, of course, but Stephen did have a very open perspective, and perhaps he did say something strong. Uh, Let's read the next paragraph, and I'll explain what I mean. They stirred up the people and the elders and teachers of the law. They seized Stephen, brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified. This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. The holy place would be the temple. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. Well, it's a slander that Stephen blasphemed Moses or God. He was uh, a man of faith. We know he was a spiritual person. But it is very possible that he did say Jesus would destroy the temple because Jesus himself said that. He said that the Son of Man would come and destroy it and not one stone would be left on another. You can read about that in Luke 21 or Mark 13 or Matthew 24. And Stephen understood, maybe more clearly than some other early Christians, that this was a transitional time, that the law of Moses applied, still applied in one way, but not in another. And so he's misrepresented. There's a kernel of truth in the accusations, but he is misrepresented. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Here's our man. He's in control. He's godly. He has that wisdom. But people are so angry, they don't care. Are these charges true? The high priest asked him. And then Stephen begins with a lengthy review of Jewish history. Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia. And we're not going to read all of Acts 7, but the chapter is nearly entirely Stephen speaking, without notes, of course, about the historical record. Not only does he know the record, he sees the pattern in history. And to simplify, the pattern is that God's people tend to reject God's messengers. And uh, the tragedy of their rejection of the Messiah himself, to whom the scriptures pointed, fits with this long trajectory of resisting the truth. And near the end of his message, after he has been quoting the Old Testament and uh, rehearsing the history. He says, you stiff-necked people. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. That's a reference to Deuteronomy and to Jeremiah, where uncircumcised ears and uncircumcised hearts means you may be outwardly religious, you may be among God's people, but, but inwardly you're not. You're not converted. You're just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. So Stephen here is wrapping up his message. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. That's the Messiah. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. These are stinging words. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. 
Gnashing of teeth, which is mentioned in the Psalms and, and in the Gospels, is not an action born out of agony. Uh, often people think of weeping and gnashing of teeth uh, in connection with judgment. But that's not what, it's not gnashing because one loses control and is just in, in great pain. It's actually a mark of anger, of deliberate uh, refusing uh, to, to listen to God's word, of stubborn, uh, recalcitrant refusal to, to bow the knee. And so this audience are furious with him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God. Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Son of Man being a term for Jesus. Jesus' own uh, 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 preferred self-description. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragging him out of the city and they began to stone him. Now, and that was the the penalty for blasphemers. They would be stoned. Now, the Jews weren't allowed to put anyone to death. They go through some semblance of a trial. I mean, testimony is given. Stephen defends himself. But they take him outside the city, and then he is stoned there. And the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. We know the story, so we know that this man will later become the Apostle Paul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. A metaphor for death. And then just the beginning of chapter 8. And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria, Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. In contrast, we read, But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. And that's the story of Stephen. It's followed by the story of Philip, not the apostle Philip the evangelist, the only two of the seven deacons about whom we really know anything. And when I say deacons, that's the consensus of most scholars. And if you want to go further, please check out Alexander Strauch's excellent book on the role, the biblical role of deacon, as he concludes that the deacon's primary responsibility was to represent the church to the poor. They were in charge of of, uh, dispensing uh, money and food and, and meeting the material needs of the needy. Such an important uh, role. Okay, we've looked at the scripture. We see how Stephen was an important part of resolving ethnic tensions. He had wisdom, someone who understood those who felt themselves underrepresented and misunderstood. He was a man who was full of faith in the spirit and grace, full of wisdom. He is a man of excellent character. We've seen that he was a bold proclaimer of Christ. He took a stand, really a stand unto death. He bore witness of Christ. He understood the scriptures. He had the big picture. And I think on two levels, he understood the big picture 
in an exemplary way. One, the history of the Old Testament, the history of God's often stubborn people. Two, he understood that Christianity was much larger than Judaism. He understood the theme of universal salvation, that that God always intended ultimately for the whole world to respond. Now, that they wouldn't respond any more than his own people would respond. But Stephen understands that it's time to burst out of the confines of of merely Palestinian Judaism. Remember, this is before Paul. Paul is present. Saul is watching, authorizing, presiding over this execution. He is God's chosen instrument to take the word to the Gentiles. There is some informal uh, evangelism in non-Jewish territory, beginning in chapter 8. We read about it in 1119. But it's not until the missionary activity of the Antioch church, sending Saul and Barnabas in Acts 13, that there's a deliberate and strategic uh, plan to obey Matthew 28 in uh, international sense of going to all the nations. So Stephen, a man of high character, Christ-like character, a bold proclaimer of Christ who has the big picture of history and of God's true purpose with Christianity. And then it remains to talk about his death. Luke, the author of Acts, has deliberately paralleled Stephen's death to that of Jesus. There are many parallels. Let me just mention a few. He says he sees the Son of Man standing at the side of God. Of course, he's He's saying that Jesus is on the same level with God. And that claim is what got Jesus himself killed. Remember when the Sanhedrin or part of the Sanhedrin challenged him in that kangaroo court and asked him to level with them, to speak directly. Uh, Is he God's holy one? And he said, yes, I'm the son of man and you'll see me coming in the clouds of heaven. And and that was it. That was uh, the, the, the wording that merited the death penalty that that authorized the Jews, in a sense, to proceed with their execution. Same thing with Stephen. And that that uh, phrase, son of man, appears outside the Gospels only here. It's a unique reference. As he's dying, he prays for the forgiveness of his enemies. So, just as the son of man saying, Luke 22.69, uh, is represented here, forgiveness of the enemy. Luke 23.43 is also represented. Then notice that he commits his spirit to God at the moment of death, just as Jesus did, Luke 23.46. You can find other parallels, but you get the idea. Those who bear witness of Jesus, who truly understand, who truly have wisdom, will not necessarily be spared persecution. In fact, they may follow their Lord all the way to the point of death. This is a beautiful illustration, I think, of Revelation 12.11. Revelation 12 has sometimes been called the book of Revelation in miniature, because you have, in a sense, the whole story there. And verse 11 really shows the the faith that we need to have if we are, are going to overcome and, and be on the right side. I'd like to read this passage. It's referring to the dragon, Satan, the devil. And it says that God's people triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Well, I think that is a great summary of Stephen, who was the first martyr 
of the Christian Church. You may know that the word martyr comes from the word for witness. In the Greek language in which the New Testament is written, martyrs, martyrs is witness. But in time, those who witnessed even unto death, well, let's just say a technical term uh, was created. They use the same word for witness, but now it has a different sense, being willing to witness even if we die. And, and that's the normal sense of the word martyr today. Many would follow in Stephen's wake, especially by the time that Christianity became illegal in the second century up to the early fourth century, uh, thousands, tens of thousands, maybe another magnitude, maybe hundreds of thousands of Christians. We don't know, but many uh, paid that penalty. Now it's time to conclude and apply these passages to us. It's not just meant to be a mini biography of Stephen. Oh, no. Now, Stephen bore witness to Christ in perhaps it was the year 32 A.D. or so. He bore witness to Christ in dying, yet by faith he continues to speak today. I think we need to walk in the footsteps of Stephen just as he walked in the footsteps of the Lord. And so I have a few challenges for us. One is that, like Stephen, we too should be able to tell the old, old story without notes. How's your knowledge of the Bible story? Do you have the big picture? Like Stephen, we need to have the big picture not just of biblical history, but of God's desire to see all peoples reached. We need to care, in other words, we need to care more about the state of our world and the spread of the gospel than we do about things that are frivolous or just temporary. There are many things that are not inherently wrong. You know, we could think of, of uh, sports, for example. We could think of many stories that run in uh, the newspapers. But just as generations come and generations go, so much of the news is not eternally newsworthy. What was news in our grandparents' day is forgotten now, or certainly will be in another generation God's heart is for the nations. God wants all people to be saved. 1 Timothy 2.4 And so that will happen better when we take a stand. When we too are able to tell the old, old story, like Stephen, not just talking, but with a passion, seeing the big picture of our lost world and prepared to take our stand to keep our eyes also on the Lord of glory. Let's follow in Stephen's footsteps.